first of all, I was nonverbal until I was four years old. I didn't start talking until then. Not being able to talk was very, very difficult for me because I couldn't really communicate the way that normal kids my age would communicate. So that was kind of difficult. And during that time, my folks tried to figure out what autism is. At the time when I was diagnosed, the ratio of getting diagnosed with autism is one in 10,000. Now it's one in 44. So back then, autism was kind of like the diamond in the rough when it comes to the diagnosis of it. Welcome to the Daily Naked Pair Podcast, brought to you by Rocco Blue, the first ever brand focused on supporting parents with special needs children. Naked Parent Nation is a group of parents with special needs children who are willing to get vulnerable, strip it all down, and take a look at ourselves, our parenting, our family, and our plans to create a life beyond our wildest dreams. On today's show, we'll be discussing school safety and alternative solutions for neurodiverse students. You won't want to miss it. Hello, Naked Parent Nation, and welcome to today's episode of the Naked Parent Podcast. My name is Chad Ratliff, and I'm your host. But before I introduce you to our guests today, let me start by sharing our community's code. Naked Parent Nation is a worldwide community of parents raising children with all kinds of needs. We come together to share our naked truths, support our fellow parents, and inspire the inner growth that each of us needs to build the life and family of our dreams. For the parents that are struggling, we want you to know that we will love you until you can love yourself. For your children, we pray and send power from our collective group. As we come to understand our divine nature, we realize that there's no need to feel sorry for ourselves, be angry, or feel lack. We come to understand that our feelings of limitation and separation are only in our minds. Through self-realization, we expand our consciousness so that the challenges that perplex us today dissipate one by one until we're able to see and experience gratitude and beauty in everything just as it is. We have the power to create any kind of life we want for ourselves and our families. We do this by living in the naked present moment, one day at a time. Esther and Jerry Hicks call it the science of deliberation, and we call it the answer to all of our prayers. So let's continue our journey as individuals and parents with a short breathing exercise and meditation. So if you'll sit up straight, spine erect, and then softly close your eyes and raise your gaze to that spot between your eyebrows. And just, just be and hear what's around you and Watch your thoughts that go across your mind and not judge. And we're going to take a deep breath in. We're going to clench our fists and tighten our muscles and we're going to hold it for a minute. And then we're going to exhale and release and relax. And we're going to do that three times. Okay. So inhale tense. Hold. Exhale, relax. Inhale, tense. Hold. Exhale, relax. And then inhale, tense. 
hold it a little longer this time. And exhale, let it go. Now one more time without tensing, just inhale and hold. And then exhale, relax. So while you sit in meditation with your eyes still closed, I'll read a short prayer before we get to our show. Heavenly Mother, Father, Friend, Great Spirit, Divine Consciousness, Wondrous Nature, and Saints of all religions, we come together as brothers and sisters on a similar quest to better understand ourselves, our divine calling, and how to be the best version of ourselves and parents for our children. We ask for guidance and the ability to accept life on life's terms. May each listener feel an inner sense of peace and calm in our hearts today. May we feel love and spread love. Om, peace, amen. So I'm super excited to introduce everybody in Naked Parent Nation to Jeff Schneider. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, let me tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Uh, you were born on March 27th, 1989 in Providence, Rhode Island, and you've lived your entire life in Seekonk, Massachusetts. You were diagnosed with autism in 1990, and ever since then, you've achieved multiple successes in education, long-term employment, independent living, and speaking and panel engagements. How awesome. Welcome again to the show. Thank you for being here. Well, it's, it's my pleasure to be here. So uh, thank you very much for having me and uh, allow me to share my experience with uh, all of you. Uh, we're, we're excited to hear because you, um, just from your brief bio, you, you set that standard for what as individuals trying to achieve and as parents for our children, our hopes and dreams for our children are to achieve these things that uh, I look forward to getting to learn a little bit more about. Can you start by like rewinding back to some of your earliest memories and how, you know, the diagnosis and just being neurodiverse played out in your early childhood? As you mentioned, I was first diagnosed on the autism spectrum in uh, December of 1990. Um, I was 21 months old at the time of my diagnosis. And for the longest time, I didn't even know I had autism until I was about nine when Nick News came to my house and it both interviewed me and filmed me as part of a story they were doing on being diagnosed with autism. And that's how I first learned of my first learned of my neurodiverse condition. But prior to that, I knew that I was always very, very different, not interacting very well with, with my peers. And I was actually in special education programs. I started off going to specialized schools in 1992 and 1993. And then I first came to Seekonk in after that. And then I actually got into the Seekonk public school system in 1994. And then upon my graduation in 2007, I became the first student with autism to have completed pre-K through grade 12 without coming from other towns or school districts. So I really kind of set a very high bar when it comes to being neurodiverse and succeeding the way I did. 
Yeah, that's uh, unbelievable. Has your, I mean, if you listening to you, nobody would know that you have any neurodiversity. Your speech is impeccable. How else did, when you say that you you felt like some things were different, how can you explain a little more about what maybe felt a little different? Well, first of all, I was nonverbal until I was four years old. I didn't start talking until then. Not being able to talk was very, very difficult for me because I couldn't really communicate the way that you know normal kids my age would communicate. So that was kind of difficult. And during that time, uh, my folks tried to figure out you know what autism is. And I was actually, at the time when I was diagnosed, the ratio of getting diagnosed with autism is one in 10,000. Now it's one in 44. So, you know, back then, you know, autism was kind of, you know, like the diamond in the rough when it comes to the diagnosis of it. And of course, at that time, um, autism was more or less connected with the movie Rain Man with um, Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. And then of course there was Dr. Temple Grandin my folks have actually had the pleasure and the opportunity to meet Dr. Grandin when I was younger and through her and and they actually, you know, talked about, you know, who I am and stuff, what, what I was, you know, going through. And then of course, and then, you know, also during that time, you know, I was put integration therapy and occupational therapy. And the only thing that I wasn't thrown into was applied behavior analysis and I actually wasn't qualified for that level. So and then, of course, you know, I've but despite all that, you know, I've eventually achieved more multiple successes, including getting my own apartment in uh, 2015. Wow. So I've been living on my own for about seven years now. Wow. It, when you look back at your childhood, would you say it was a happy childhood? Was it a difficult childhood? How did how do you sum up your childhood? I would say it was difficult at times in regards that I reacted to things in certain ways that, you know, I kind of, you know, wish I regretted. The trouble with one of the parts and parcels of being neurodiverse is that I have sensory processing disorders. So I couldn't really process certain situations and certain things properly. And that was probably one of the more difficult aspects. But I mean, you know, as, as I got older and began to be more understanding of the world around me, some of that just kind of went away. And I don't know if it was because of growing up, you know, maybe it was because of age and wisdom and stuff. But over time, I really kind of started to grow and started to accept myself for who I really am. And, you know, I'm taking that, taking my story and sharing it, especially now, as the um, diagnosis ratio is one in 44. And uh, we're so grateful that you are. How, that's amazing. That's, it's amazing to, to take that responsibility yourself and, and say that, you know, how you were seeing the world around you. I think that's amazing. And I think the Rain Man analysis is, I just want to bring up a point on that is interesting because my son's very low functioning. And I remember when he was younger and people would say, you know, I mean, he's wearing a diaper and, and some things that aren't very developed and they say, oh, you know, everybody's with autism is it has some kind of genius, you know? And meanwhile, we're like cleaning feces off the wall and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's challenging to 
you know, when people are saying, thinking that your kid's going to be the next Beethoven because they have autism and there's such a wide spectrum. Did you know other neurodiverse kids growing up in school? Most of the students that I interacted with had were, were on uh, IEPs or had um, learning disabilities. And it wasn't until 2003 when I founded a hangout with my psychologist for individuals on the autism spectrum. And that's how I really started interacting more with peers that are also on the autism spectrum and, you know, getting a chance to kind of, you know, yearning for that human inter for that inter for that type of interaction because talking with neurotypical kids my age were was in a way kind of difficult because they had interests that didn't really match up to my interests i mean sure you know we have in the 90s with the pokemon with the pokemon fad that was going on at the, at that time so i kind of had that low-key interest in pokemon the same way as they do. And then everybody, while everybody was big on like baseball and football, I mean, of course I'm a football fan now. Back when I was a kid, I was big in an, into NASCAR and a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of peers my age, you know, weren't big into NASCAR. They were, you know, big into those, into the other, you know, sports that everybody gets involved with. So that was kind of the differential in my standing. You bring up how we all crave human interaction. Sometimes I think like my son, even my daughter, they sometimes seem like they don't want that interaction or that connection or that hug. Is it possible or, or was it, did you have anything like this where your actions maybe didn't show what your heart really craved? Am I making sense or I don't know if I'm making? I think that's that kind of thing because I think what a lot of parents worry the most in terms of, I would say there was probably a little bit of forced interaction from my family because, you know, both my mom and dad come from very large families. So there was always that, you know, frequent forced interaction, if you will, of being around families that are very, being around families that, you know, you don't really interact with. And, and sometimes, you know, I think the problem I think that a lot of parents face is that just because your child isn't very interactive with others around them, it doesn't mean that they're going to be antisocial or being doing things their own way. They are doing things their own way, but they want to, just because they think they're being antisocial doesn't mean they're not. They're just, you know, trying to do things. They're going to take those steps toward interaction in their own time. And you can't force human interaction, you can't force interaction on someone who's neurodiverse because that could be extremely damaging and and very bothersome to neurodiverse individuals. I think that's a great for our listeners and for myself to hear. Let's rewind back to this hangout. You said that you founded a hangout with your psychologist. Are you talking about like a place where you guys can meet and hang out? Yes. I mean, you know, it started off at my psychologist's office. And then almost then about nine years ago, we evolved it to an adult hangout that's not in the office per se, uh, at like at the bowling alley or, or at a billiards hall or at a mini golf course. So, so we branched out outside the office at that time. And it's still going strong uh, nine years later. Oh, cool. 
did your psychologist play an important role in your life or upbringing? Yes. I first met my psychologist in 2003, which was about almost 20 years ago. And that time, you know, it gave me someone to talk to other than, you know, my, other than my folks. And because, you know, I couldn't really understand what was going on around me at that time. I mean, you know, sure, you know, I matured and developed and all that stuff, but it was very hard for me to fully understand. So going to my psychologist gave me the opportunity to kind of, you know, have someone to talk to solve my issues at my at my own pace. And then, of course, I also ended up also added a psychiatrist to the mix, but that was more on the medicational aspect. But the psychologist aspect was like being more solving ongoing issues and all that. Yeah, sounds like an awesome relationship. And then you said it was at nine years old when that showed up at your door? Yes. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with Nick News, Nick News was that new show back in the 90s. Nickelodeon had a had a new show called Nick News with Linda with um, Linda Ellerby. And among the um, stories they did was on autism. And that's how, again, I first learned of my diagnosis. So if you grew up in the 90s like I did, uh, you'll remember Nick News. But um, for those of you who aren't really familiar, that's what it was like back back at that time. Was it your parents who connected you with Nick News or? Honestly, I'm not really sure. I mean, it's still kind of a bit of a mystery to me. So, but either that, way, either way I was featured. What was that experience like? I mean, how did you take the news? I mean. Well, well, they, they had a camera crew that came uh, from Orlando and they filmed me, uh, you know, doing my everyday things and, of course, I was big in the NASCAR, so I, you know, I would always do like mock races on the kitchen tables. So that's what I did. And so they filmed me doing that and just doing that sort of thing. So, I mean, it was, uh, it had it, had it not been for Nick News filming me for that, for the autism segment, I probably wouldn't even know of my diagnosis until later in life. I mean, you know, maybe my folks could have kept the diagnosis for me because they probably couldn't figure out how to explain it how to explain my diagnosis. So that was kind of the difficult mindset in that regard. But yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, were you shocked or were you in denial or did it make you sad or did it make you feel like it started to, now this explains some things? that didn't I wasn't really in denial, but I was more, I really kind of found out, you know, why I was acting differently the way other kids were. I mean, it was kind of more of a identity, more of a, a self-realization that this is why I am what I am. So that's really how I've embraced that that ideology. And at that young age, were, did it make you feel sad or different or it didn't have any negative? It didn't have any negative impact on okay. me because I think I was who I was and that was pretty much, you know, the way it was meant to be. And, and, I be, and since... And part of it, having become a, a full-time advocate for the past three years, I look back on Nick News and I say to myself, that's just, you know, had it not been for Nick, again, had it not been for Nick News, I probably would not have, have known about my autism diagnosis in the manner that I learned it. So, Have you always been this kind of self-secure with yourself? I mean, 
there's a lot of people that aren't considered neurodiverse that aren't in acceptance of who they are and how they act. And it sounds like from a young age, you, it sounds like you were in acceptance that this is who I am. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Well, one thing I always tell people about autism is that I always try to view autism more as a blessing rather than a curse. I mean, there are probably some families that view autism as a curse because it's affected their child and in a way it affects them, you know, how they're going to succeed in life. But one thing I always tell people is that it's better to focus on the blessings because just because we have a neurodiverse condition like autism, it doesn't mean that we can make a great impact. We make the impact the way that we want, that people expect us to impact the world. I mean, you know, there are mountains that are meant to be moved. It's like Dr. Seuss says in Oh, the Place You'll Go, that you'll move mountains and you'll be successful 98% indeed. So really, it's more about focusing on the blessings and the milestones. And key thing is that we, we all move at our own pace. And when we move at our own pace, we'll succeed at the levels that we want to, that we can be successful at. Wow, that was beautifully said. Very well said. Did you have people around you that helped you focus on the blessings and positivity? Or is that something that you had to generate? I, I definitely had a lot of people that, you know, helped me focus on the blessings, particularly when I was in, I was very fortunate to have been involved as a student at Seekonk Public Schools because Seekonk in recent years has become more focused on DEI in terms of diversity, equality, and inclusion. And because I went to school in the system prior to my involvement as a student, they didn't have a lot of specialized educational programs that they do now. And because of my involvement, they have those programs that a lot of students like me can have an opportunity to thrive and grow in the level that they're in. And of course, you know, recently Seekonk was recognized by the Special Olympics as one as one achievement. And then uh, they also started a transitions academy because another one of my fortes is helping people with transitioning from high school to the real world because I struggled because my transitioning was very rough one of my fortes is helping people with transitioning from the security of high school to the real world in terms of getting a job, um, going to college, driving a car if they want to. There's the school part, and then there's the transition. That's really where my focus as an advocate lie in terms of what is life like after high school? What's life like during school and being on an IEP and that's really where my main focus is as an advocate. That's awesome. Can you share some of what made the transition difficult for you and maybe some things that you were able to do or learn or understand to overcome those? Well, I think the first thing is that I didn't start preparing for the transitioning when I was still in high school. I actually ended up preparing for the transition while I was out of high school and I didn't get my first paying job until I was out of, until I was out of high school. And looking back, I say to myself, if I had gotten a paid job while I was still in high school or being prepared to transition, 
while I was still in high school, that maybe my transition probably would have been a lot more smoother than it would have been. And of course, you know, I did some volunteering at my town's public library, sophomore and junior year of high school, but that was it. I mean, I wasn't getting paid. I wasn't doing this for, I was just volunteering. And one thing I try to preach to schools, one thing I try to preach to people connected in education and transitioning and vocational is to always try to start the transition process while the child is still in high school. Maybe during freshman and sophomore years, maybe have the student start do like volunteering just to gain experience. And then probably when, and then when the student reaches junior or senior year, then, you know, start getting experience with paid work, going through a job interview process, doing all that while you're still in school and not having to wait until you're 18 years old. Cause then just because you're 18 doesn't mean you automatically get going to the transition period. And I think also a lot of parents can be in denial that their child doesn't need to prepare for transitioning while they're still in high school. They can, they think it's more about child focusing on the education, which I say that I don't believe that it's a good idea to wait until the child gets out of high school, gets the diploma and goes off into the real world. It's more about taking that step-by-step approach to successfully getting a good transition. And then if the child, if the student takes that step-by-step approach, then they'll have a much smoother transition when the time comes to, for them to get out of high school. I like that. So plan ahead, plan ahead and give yourself enough time to be successful. It's awesome to hear the impact that you've made on the school and creating new programs. Does anything stand out, you know, from early on things in school programs that that weren't great for people on the spectrum or with sensory processing disorder? And then maybe some things that have changed to be more accommodating. Are there any of those things that stand out? Well, uh, definitely one thing that I really struggle with was school safety drills. School safety drills were probably my biggest challenge in, in when I was in school, particularly with fire drills because of my sensory issues. Whenever there was a fire drill, it was very traumatizing. It was very sensory overloading. And then of course, then there's the matter. Uh, Lockdown down drills was another, was another stressful, intenseful situation that you know I had to go through. And school safety drills, is another one of my big fortes because I struggled a lot with school safety drills. I mean, it was even in my IEP that I would get taken out of the building before they would pull the alarm or if we're gonna have like a a lockdown drill or a bus evacuation drill, I would get advance notice. One thing I try to say to, to schools is just because some schools think that the child is trying to get out of doing the drill because they're scared well, they are scared, but but I'm trying to help soften the blow by advocating that special ed students who have a fear of you know school safety drills get the advance notice that they need, because then when the time comes, they'll have a much smoother transition. And of course, you I mean I get that the school is trying to create the real surprise feeling because when the real thing comes, it's not scripted, it's not scheduled. I get that, but when it comes to doing the drill there's always the option of getting advanced notice 
and in a way you're kind of building bridges between the student and the school. You know, school teachers and school administrators and school personnel, they probably hit the sounds of the alarms as much as anybody. But I understand that there are state laws that require you to practice school safety drills X amount of X number amount of years, uh, times a year. So Unicorn Children's Foundation, who I was a member of the board of directors, our CEO recently came on, was recently interviewed about active shooter drills and its impact on special education students and the possibility of maybe using uh, alternative language that includes like using different language to describe certain drills, like instead of run hot, instead of, you know, like bear using strong language, like alert, barricade, confront, maybe it's more of, you know, along the ranks of run, hide, and if necessary, confront the attackers. So, I mean, it's more about using the sugarcoating, how we explain drills, but not really just trying to, but not trying to deter the purpose of the drill. It's more about taking that baby steps approach to, to these drills and convincing schools that the child, that the student is not trying to get out of the drill. It's, you know, it's just very bothersome that we're just trying to soften the impact of it. It's an analogy I use is in the movie Twister, 1996 from Twister, that they're not trying to kill tornadoes. They're just trying to create an advanced warning. The characters are trying to create an advanced warning system that gets people advanced notice to take shelter. Like in the film, the state alert system for tornadoes is three minutes, but the characters are trying to try to get the warning time to 15 minutes. And that's how I approach school safety drills in that regard is to give advanced warning and in that way that the student can be better prepared mentally. And if they do that, then they'll have a much more smoother, you know, transition. Sure, they may be frightened at first, but it's really about softening the blow. I like that. Changing the language. I like that. Have you always been a leader and, you know, you've taken very much a a leader advocate role. Have you always been this way? Have you always been a leader and confident and leading the charge? Yes, actually. Well, yeah, I mean, I've obviously, you know, been, you know, I've learned from the experience of being on the, I've had experience of, you know, confronting school safety, what goes on with school safety drills, you know, being on the autism spectrum, uh, transitioning, all those things. So I've, by sharing my experience, you know, I've sort of been a leader in doing what I do as an advocate and public speaker, because I think today's generation of student, of teachers, parents, and even students can benefit from my story and the other in the community like myself. I totally agree. And I'm grateful that you're doing it. I don't know that everybody can step up and do it the way that you're doing it. And so we thank you for that because we need what you're doing. How did you start becoming an advocate and working with the schools? Well, it's kind of funny, but I was a member of what is known as the Brony fandom. And for those who don't know, Brony means a fan of My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. And for six years, I would go to what is known as Brony conventions. And at Brony conventions, it was more about the code was love and tolerate. And among the lessons that I learned from Friendship is Magic and the Brony fandom is about diversity, about equality, about inclusion, also about building friendships and connections. So 
when Friendship's Magic ended in 2019, I took what I learned from the show and the fandom and incorporated it into the um, into the autism and neurodiversity self advocacy that I do now. So the other thing that I was inspired to become an advocate was I have two nieces, one who just started kindergarten and another who just turned two. I'm trying to set an example for them that, you know, they're going to be growing up among people who are neurodiverse or have a disability. And I want them to kind of get an understanding that's how the world is going to work is, you know, there's going to be people different than them. And I want them to be accepting who they are, of who people are as individuals. I love that. So what's next on your list that you want to, that you're looking to add to your, your life, your repertoire, your... I did find, found my own blog and business called um, Going the Distance. Um, I've ha- been, I've owned it since I created it in May of 2021. And it serves as the hub for my advocacy and my public speaking services. I do blogs every week. As of this recording, I have done 273 blogs with my 274th coming out tomorrow. And I also contributed to uh, the book, This is Autism, which is available on Amazon.com for 1997. It is written by Jessica Lightwise and Aiden Almond Cooper. And I am one of the contributing authors to the book. So again, it's available on Amazon.com for 1997. And if you would like me to sign, uh, if you would like, if you want me or one of the contributors to sign you a copy at a future in-person event, please let one of us know. We'd be happy to sign you a copy. How cool. How cool. Before I forget, when we finish the show here, if you can email any links to your blog or website or anything, we can put it in the show notes for people who want to reach out and get, get in touch with you. Certainly, certainly, I I will do that. That'd be awesome. And then, you know, I've really enjoyed this conversation. We're kind of running in on time here. What do you say to the parents out there with a newly diagnosed child? What do you say to them? Well, the first thing I would probably say to them is just remember you are not alone. And the good news is there's plenty of resources available now than when I was first diagnosed in the 1990s. You know, there's plenty of autism, neurodiversity, disability organizations that have evolved and grown in the past 30 some odd years that, you know, autism really became a thing. And, you know, there's plenty of like neuroscience resources that parents can turn to. The strong factor is advocate for your child. If you don't know how to advocate for your child, look to someone that that has the experience of being on the spectrum just someone that knows what it's like to go through the autism diagnosis and growing up on the spectrum. And then also then there's the matter. Another factor is don't seek out, you know, professionals that say, you know, oh, you got, you know, you got to be cured of autism and all that and garbage like that. It's autism is something to be accepted and embraced and just something that should not be viewed as anything but shouldn't be viewed as a disease or anything like that because it's not it's a neurological condition and the key factor is another thing is always view autism as the blessing and less more of the blessing and less of the curse that's my advice to parents i love that i love that i think 
I've really enjoyed this conversation. I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. I think that's the perfect place to leave it is autism's to be celebrated. And I'm grateful that you share that with us today. And I hope you stay a friend of the shows and I'd love to touch base down the road and, and just kind of hear what you're hear what you're up to. Okay. Thank, well, thank you. you. Thank, uh, thank you very much for having me. So we can figure out, learn how to get in touch with you. Okay. Yep. Okay. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. This concludes our show for today. And I'd like to personally thank you for spending the time with us on a topic near and dear to our hearts. If you'd like to be part of the Naked Parent Nation and help us reach those parents that are struggling and overwhelmed, there's no better way to help than by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes. iTunes highlights the shows based on these metrics, and the more the show gets highlighted, the more opportunities people will have to be introduced to the show where they can hear that message of hope or that tip that can change everything. So follow the link in our show notes And we hope to have you back here tomorrow where we'll do it again. From the team here at the Naked Parent Podcast, we wish you the life you've always dreamed of and then some. So long.